see trees of green Red roses too I see them blue For me and you And I think to myself Virgin Valley Artists Association welcomes you to the Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone of all ages. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, or on Facebook as Mesquite Fine Art Center, also on Facebook, the Art Box. Welcome to another episode of The Art Box. Linda, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Steve. I'm really excited because of who we're interviewing today. Yeah, we've been talking about this for a long time. Yes. And, and, and Linda's been really studying up on Patricia. And, and reading her books. So, Steve, I'm going to uh, read this short bio. Patricia Levy, Ph.D., is an award-winning, best-selling author. She has published over 40 books earning commercial and critical success in both nonfiction and fiction, and her work has been translated into many languages. Her works have garnered a slew of book awards, including USA Best Book Awards, Independent Press Awards, International Impact Book Awards, National Indie Excellence Awards, Firebird Book Awards, National Book Awards, New York City Big Book Awards, and American Fiction Awards. How about that, Steve? That's a slew there, isn't it? I know. She has also received career awards from the New England Sociological Association, the American Creativity Association, the American Educational Research Association, the International Congress of Qualitative Inquiry, and the National Art Education Association. In 2018, she was honored by the National Women's Hall of Fame and SUNY New Paltz established the Patricia Levy Award for Art and Social Justice. Her website is www.patricialevy.com. Welcome, Patricia. Thanks so much for having me. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm embarrassed by that lovely introduction, so thank you. I mean, I guess really most simply, I would just say that I'm a writer, and I have a background in sociology and was a sociology professor while I was sort of always writing as my side hustle, you know, writing both nonfiction work and then eventually fiction and creative work. And over 10 years ago, I made the shift and left academia to be a full-time author. And I continue to write nonfiction and fiction. My nonfiction books, they, they cover a wide range, but most of them are really about research methods, which I know probably sounds like the least sexy topic in the world, but I actually think it's great because research methods are just tools that researchers in any field use to generate knowledge, to build knowledge, to learn about topics we're interested in. And so I've especially written books about how researchers in all fields can use the arts as they develop their research projects and learn about the world, how they can use different art forms, how they can use fiction, um, and that sort of thing. 
And then I also write novels. I've published more than a dozen dozen novels. And they span different genres, too. I mean, they're usually categorized as women's fiction. But of course, if you're a woman author and you write women protagonists, you get saddled with women's fiction, which is okay. I'm fine with it. But there are different genres. I've written romances, adventure, chiclet, you know, all different sorts of things. And really, I'm just a person who's in love with the arts. I'm in love with creativity and writing and fiction and the arts. And so the different facets of my career really all center on creativity and the arts and advocating for the arts. Patricia, when I read your bio and looked at some of the work you had done, by the way, I read Film Blue. And as I told you, it's one of those books that really stays with you after you read it for a while because... There are so many layers to the book and what the characters are going through, and you hit on several different challenges of today, the Me Too movement, deciding what kind of lifestyle you want to live, alternative lifestyles, trying to find your place in the world. But what I wanted to ask you, and and we can talk about that book and your new one coming up in a few minutes, I had to look up arts-based research to find out a little bit more about what you do. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely, and thank you so much for your kind words about Film Blue. I really, really appreciate it. That book is special to me. It originally was two novellas. One was called Blue and one was called Film, and I always felt that they were really meant to be one book, so... It was one of my sort of pandemic projects to rewrite it all and make it the one novel I think that it was meant to be. So thanks for your kind words. So about arts-based research, I actually didn't know the term either. And it turned out I had been doing arts-based research and I didn't even know it. Years ago, more than 15 years ago, probably about 20 years ago, at least, I'd say, I started doing research that involved the arts and creativity and the humanities. And I was also writing research methods textbooks about traditional ways that scholars do research, qualitative and quantitative research and that sort of thing. And I was looking for emergent and innovative ways that people were doing research. And I kept stumbling across things like poetic inquiry and narrative inquiry, um, collage making, and all these different examples of scholars in different fields turning to the arts as a method of inquiry and integrating the arts and how they would conceptualize and build a study and carry out that study. I actually, I just thought, wow, this is really cool. This really resonates with me that researchers are using the arts to get at their questions in new ways, to ask different questions, to make their research more accessible to the public, because historically research really only circulates within the academy and it's a very insular sort of sphere. So I thought, wow, this, you know, really resonated with me. And I just started using the term creative methods because I didn't know there actually was a term, which is arts-based research, which was coined by Elliot Eisner and Tom Barone in the early 90s. And arts-based research is when researchers in any discipline adapt the tenets of the creative arts in their research project. So they might use an art form, whether it's visual art, poetry, writing fiction, whatever the art form is, they might use it for part of their research. So they might use it as they collect their data, or they might use it as a way to analyze their data, or they might use it, which is most common, as a way to represent their data and research findings. Or arts-based research 
in a given project can be using the arts as the entire method of inquiry, including the final representation. The short answer would be that arts-based research is a set of tools that researchers in any field can use to adapt the tenets of the creative arts in their research projects. Thank you for explaining that more thoroughly. I had an idea of what it was, and an example, the example I read was maybe a play is put on with some ideas in the play, and then the audience is asked to give their input about the play. Yeah, absolutely. mm -hmm. I mean, there's all different methods. You know, I mean, you know how much scholars like to uh, use jargon and create often unnecessary words for things. There are scholars who do what they call ethnodrama or ethnotheater. But really, in simple terms, it's plays, it's drama, it's theater. That's either based on research or which they are are showing to an audience that are research participants that will then help them generate meaning out of that, such as in the example you gave. Mm -hmm. Um, There are many, many examples of scholars in different fields doing an interview study or a document analysis study of media on whatever their topic is, and then representing their findings as a play or what they might call ethnodrama or ethnotheater, because, again, I don't know why, but scholars just love to create fancy words that we probably don't need. Um, <laughs> but you can sort of imagine how, first mm-hmm. of all, you can, you can address a topic very differently if you're putting on a play versus if you are writing a, an article for a peer-reviewed journal, um, which is traditionally how most people would learn to represent their research. Mm-hmm. But just think about the emotions and the layers of meaning that you could get at in a play that you could never get at in a dry academic report. And then on top of that, like in your example, you think about the audience participation, the audience feedback, and just the fact that you would even have an audience because most academic scholarship, sadly, has no audience at all. And that really is true. I mean, there's this idea that academic scholarship must be widely read within the academy But it's really not true. Over 90% of academic journal articles have an audience of three-day readers, three Mm -hmm. to eight. I mean, that's like three of us on this podcast. So in Mm -hmm. other words, like almost nobody, you know, if you think about the years you could spend to do this research and get it published and then three to eight people read it, and those people aren't reading it necessarily to even really learn They might be reading it just so they can cite it in their own study. The traditional way of representing academic research is, you know, deeply flawed. It's not accessible to anyone in the public, which I think is important. But even beyond that, it's really quite inaccessible even within the academy. And so arts-based research is one set of approaches to research that help combat that by making research more accessible, more engaging, allowing you to get at different dimensions of, of human life and experience. Well, is, is that acceptable? It sure is. I mean, now, when I say that, I, I sort of, you know, I say it with a little bit of a wink and a smile because it's one of those yes and no things. There are scholars all over the world who do arts-based research. So I did not create this. I'm by no means the first person to do it. I won't be the last. There have been countless books, journal articles, presentations, conference presentations devoted to 
the outcomes of arts-based research. And there are awards, uh, you know, major professional awards from major national associations in arts-based research. Yes, it is a legitimate practice that people engage in. However, does everybody in the academy find it legitimate? Does everybody in the academy? No, of course not. As with any new innovation or anything emergent, it takes a lot of time, and there are a lot of people that are very committed to doing whatever the old way was. doesn't even matter what it was, but there are just some people that are, are very committed to that. So they feel threatened by innovation and change. And we all know that the arts are not always valued for being rigorous, which in fact they are. So when you combine all those things, you know, there are absolutely some naysayers out there. But that being said, I feel like they're increasingly in the minority. When I started writing about arts-based research, my first edition of my book, Method Meets Art, which is an introduction to arts-based research, it came out in 2008. So I probably started writing it around 2005, maybe 2006. And back then, it was like, you would think that I was writing about something I was completely making up, which in fact I wasn't. I was just chronicling what other people were doing. But it was very hard to find enough sources for the book. I had a lot of people tell me that this isn't, you know, the book's not going to sell. Nobody's going to read it. Nobody's ever going to teach this. No one's ever going to take it seriously. So that was the landscape, you know, around 2005, 2006 to 2008 when the book came out. Well, fast forward now, Method Meets Art became my first bestseller. It's now in its third edition. It's been translated into many languages around the world, and people around the world read it. And indeed, students are taught now pretty regularly to, to do arts-based research in their research methods programs. The world has changed a lot, and that's really only in 15 years. 15 years is nothing. And incidentally, when I first started writing about arts-based research, it wasn't new. People had been doing that work for many, many years, and people had even been doing it before Eisner and Barone coined the term in the early 90s. People had arguably been in incorporating the arts into their research, really, for, for all time that research has been done. It just we don't always look at it as sort of grouped together. We just look at sort of individual works. For example, like take someone like Jean-Paul Sartre, who won the Nobel Prize. Well, he won the Nobel Prize for his work in philosophy, but he wrote most of his philosophy as plays, short stories, and novels. So he was doing this work many, many decades ago and being recognized as one of the greatest thinkers of our time. Simone de Beauvoir, another example, Zora Neale Hurston, in my home discipline of sociology, W.E.B. Du Bois, who is one of the icons in sociological theory, he wrote multiple novels, including a romance novel, espousing his sociological views. The reality is, even though 15 years ago when I wrote Method Meets Art kind of freaked a lot of people out, the fact is, people have been doing this work and doing it at a very high level for a really long time. And I just feel like I've been a part of trying to chronicle that. I always say that I've just, I've tried to expose more people to it, to do what I can to expose more people, just so they know it's an option. I mean, I actually think that researchers should use whatever methods work for them, whether it's arts-based, qualitative, quantitative, mixed methods, or if they're creating a new method altogether. I think that there are, it's important we value different ways of knowing because we can ask more questions and we can get more nuanced answers if we have different approaches to knowledge building. 
So I'm certainly not, you know, pro some methods and anti other methods. I'm just for legitimating a wider range of methods so that more people um, have more ways to to learn about the world. Patricia, you mentioned that your methods-based books are used in classrooms throughout the world. Aren't your fiction books as well used with students? They are, and thank you for asking. So I'll tell you the story, I guess, maybe about my first novel and how that came to be because it will shed some light on your comment. My first novel, which was called Low Fat Love, it came out, gosh, I don't know, like 11 or 12 years ago, something like that. And I was writing it, obviously, prior to when it came out. I was writing this novel. It felt to me like I was taking all the research I had done over the years, the sociological research on women's relationships, self-esteem, body image, the sort of substantive topics that I studied, And I was transforming it all into fiction through imaginative composite characters that I created in fictional situations, but I was taking all the things I had learned over the years and putting it into this novel. And I didn't even know I was going to publish it. I, I genuinely was just writing it for myself. And my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, and he's actually my husband because he told me to publish it, um, <laughs> but he was reading it as I was going, and he said, oh, you have to finish this, you have to write a novel. And then when I finished it, I said, you know, I don't know if I should publish it. He said, you should definitely publish it, which is actually when I told my mother, I'm going to marry this guy. And I did marry him. We've been married for a long time now. I was thinking, though, how am I going to publish this novel? Because It is a novel that anybody can read, you know, on the beach, on an airplane. But to me, it also was very much grounded in my sociological research and insights and experiences in my entire career to date. So I spent a lot of time thinking about how to publish it. I looked at traditional trade publishing for fiction authors. I looked at self-publishing. I considered every option out there. And then I really decided what I wanted to do was build a bridge between fiction and the academy, which this is another example where everybody thought I was just bonkers mad um, that like there was no way an academic publisher was going to publish fiction was what I basically heard from everyone. But I came up with the concept of social fiction to categorize the, the fiction that scholars write. So that way, it wouldn't just be about my novel, Low Fat Love, but it was about this broader idea of social fiction. And I ended up striking a deal with an independent, forward-thinking academic publisher to, to edit a series called the Social Fiction Series. And my novel, Low Fat Love, was to be the debut book in the series. And I'll tell you, my initial contract for that series was only two books my book, and I could select one other, and that was it. And I'll tell you, if you are creating a book series and you only get a contract for two books, it basically means the publisher thinks it's going to fail. They don't have any faith it's going to work out, which I was fine with that because I thought, you know, they might be right. What do I know? I was just grateful I found a publisher to take it on. But by the time my book came out, my book already sort of hit a nerve and was doing much better than expected. And so I was able to select a third book. And then there was never any question about how many books or a limit on books. I edited the series for a decade and we published around 45 or 50 books, I think, in total, Um, maybe a little more than that before I decided to step down and do something else. But this is my very long way of telling you, Linda, that 
when I really started writing fiction, my intent was always to write fiction that could be read inside of the academy, so inside of college classes, or that it could be read just by anyone who is just looking for a novel to read, cozy at home on a Sunday or whatever it might be. I've always sort of marketed and positioned my novels for both inside classrooms and for the general public. That's been really wonderful for me because it's allowed me to contribute scholarship in a way that is much more meaningful to me and I think is a much better experience for students to read and reflect on and think about. And it's allowed me to create a sort of niche career in fiction for myself because fiction is such a competitive, competitive world. It's it's one of the most competitive fields you can go into. And so it didn't really start out as strategy. A lot of it was just problem solving and making decisions at the time, but it marketing my work that way and positioning that way allowed me to create a career out of it. And it also allowed me to help legitimate the work that many other scholars were doing and their fiction, whether it was plays or novels or short stories. And so that's been really rewarding too. Patricia, one of the things that I really liked about Film Blue was at the end of it, you had further engagement uh, for book clubs and classroom use in the form of discussion questions. For me, even not being in a book club, I enjoyed reading the questions and it helped me think more about what I was reading in the book and delve more into the what you were portraying as you wrote the book. That means so much to me. Thank you so much for that comment because I really do think a lot about and spend a lot of time on any supplemental materials for any of my novels. And, and I really think about the reader experience. And, you know, look, some people just want to read a novel and they get to the last page and they want to put it away and pick up the next novel. But there are also readers who want to reflect on it and think about it, or they already are reflecting on it and thinking about it. And so as an author, I'm happy to sort of be in conversation with them by providing those questions, which give them nuggets into what I was thinking. And of course, I also want to make it easier for professors who want to incorporate a work of fiction into their class. Because, you know, incorporating fiction into your class is really a fantastic thing to do. And when I was a professor, I did it all the time. This was long before I was publishing my own fiction. But I always incorporated creative writing and other sorts of artistic works in my classes because students can enjoy it in a different way. They reflect in a different way. It promotes a different level of discussion and conversation. So I wanted to make it easy for professors who might want to incorporate fiction into their classes, but might not be exactly sure how to do that. I wanted to give them the supplemental material that that might help them do that. You were so inclusive. We're talking about different lifestyles, and there's pushback in your book about that. I am so appreciative of you mentioning it because it is something I think about. I mean, I think about with every book I write, what am I representing? Who am I representing? What am I putting out into the world? I mean, I always think about that. I mean, at the core, I went into sociology because I believe in social justice and equality. 
And I believe that the words and the works of art we put out into the world matter and influence the way people think. And so I really think about it with each work. But I also think about it with my body of work overall. Like I want to be able to look back at my my body of work and all of my fiction and feel good about what I put out into the world. Film Blue is special to me for many reasons, but I did try to address different issues of diversity, but in a way where regardless of where the reader is coming from, they would hopefully just get into the experiences of the characters and maybe see something from a different point of view if a character represents something or someone that's different from their experience. And I'll tell you, I did have a great experience uh, when the book came out. I often will get direct messages on Facebook from readers, and I got one from a reader who was like in the middle of the book, and there's a character named Lou, and she is gay, and she starts to have a relationship with a character named Paisley. And so this is at the very beginning when those two characters meet. Okay, so this woman I've never met emails me on Facebook, DMs me, and says, you know, I'm at the part of the book where Lou and Paisley meet. Can you just tell me right now, is this going to be a homosexual relationship? (laughs) And so it's like, oh, my God. So I know, obviously, when somebody's wording something like that, what they're really saying is that they are not open to reading a book with a homosexual relationship. I sent her a really nice email back, and I don't always do that. If somebody is, I feel, being intentionally rude, I don't reply. But I didn't feel that was necessarily the case with this woman. I thought it was someone who is just less exposed, you know, maybe that there was some room for growth. So I responded with a very kind email back, and I did tell her what was coming and that it was going to be a sexual relationship. And so, you know, if she didn't want to read that, then she shouldn't read it, that I thought it was a really beautiful relationship. And if she chooses to read it, I hope she enjoys it. And she ultimately emailed me back. She did read the entire book, and she loved it, and she did say that that relationship was eye-opening for her. And it even made her think about someone in her own life who is gay, who I think she does not have a positive relationship with, and was looking at that very differently. And it's yeah, so it, it matters what you put into the world. I mean, it really, really matters, you know. And so I do think about it with my books. What am I putting out into the world? What kinds of representations? What are the things that people struggle with because of their different status characteristics and because of the the way that our world is ordered? And how can we help them to imagine how things might be different? I mean, I really think what fiction writers do, I think fiction writers do two things. I think they document the way the world is. And I think they help us imagine how it might be different, or at least that's how I see my role. So I very much see my novels as chronicling the world as it is, but also offering a vision of how it might be. So I really appreciate your comments because I I do try to incorporate those messages into the novels, but in a way that they're just part of the story. I mean, there's no lecture, there's no preaching. It's just based on the kinds of characters that I create and the situations we find them in. That has to be a fantastic compliment to know that you influenced that woman's outlook and opened her eyes a little bit on diversity and acceptance 
Oh, it means so much to me. Sure. I mean, I'll tell you, Linda, some of the nicest things that people have ever said to me in my life have been after reading one of my novels. And because the things they say are so pure and so honest, they're just these emotional reactions. I mean, for example, I have one collection of novels, Celestial Bodies, the Tesley and Jack Miller novels. It's a collection of six novels, and it's it's one of my all-time favorite things I've ever written. It's really, it's, it's a love story, but it's really about the journey from darkness to light in our lives. And it's very much a healing story. And I'm not giving anything away because you find out in the first chapter of the first book in the collection, but Tesley, the protagonist, uh, was sexually abused as a child. And so obviously this is something she carries through to adulthood and it, it shapes um, many of her experiences and her relationships. And I had a woman who read the collection. I forget exactly how old she said she was, but I believe she was in her 70s. Maybe it was her late 60s. And she messaged me on Facebook, again, somebody I've never met, that she had read the book. And she told me that she was raped when she was a teenager. And she had never told anyone that. But the book was so healing to her, reading it and going through Tess and Jack's love story. It was so healing that it was the first time that she had ever really mentally confronted it. And she told me about it. And it's just incredible to be a part of what is someone's healing journey. The greatest things people have said to me, and sometimes I don't even think they're trying to compliment me. Sometimes I think they're just talking about themselves and their experience of the book. But it's the greatest compliment in the whole world that anything you could write and that comes so much from your heart would reach into somebody else's heart in a way that is meaningful to them. And that's beautiful. And Linda and I are both looking at my copy mm -hmm. of that book, all tattered and torn with a, <laughs> with a bunch of page markers in it as well. I had written the first, it's a total of six books, and I had written the first four before the pandemic started. And then when the pandemic started and we were all in lockdown, you know, obviously, as you know, we couldn't leave our homes. I just wanted to mentally escape to a beautiful, loving world that was very different than what we were all experiencing. And so I wrote the last two novels in Celestial Bodies, North Star and Stardust. And it was such a gift because had I not written the previous ones, I wouldn't have been able to slip right into that. But I slipped right into it. And so... I know the lockdown was just miserable for a lot of people, and I feel for all of them. But for me, I was—I spent seven days a week in Tess Lee's world, and and that was a great escape. Oh, I bet it was. Now you also wrote your newest book, Hollyland, during the pandemic as well. I did. So the story about Hollyland, which I'm really, really excited about this book. I mean. You know, look, I, I, you know, as authors or artists, we love all of our works because they're, they're like our babies. Mm -hmm. And I do have a human child, so I say that as a mother. But our, our books or our works of art, they are in a very real way. They're a part of us, and we give birth to them and nurture them in a different way. And so, you know, I wouldn't publish a book if I didn't love it or at least didn't love it at the time. I'm proud of and I, I love all my novels um, in the way that a mom loves all her kids. But some have a very special place in my heart, and Hollyland is one of those. Hollyland, it comes out April 4th, but it's available to pre-order now everywhere that books are sold. And it's really special to me. I, it was during the lockdown, and I live in Maine, and my parents live in Florida. 
And I was actually supposed to visit my parents in April of 2020. I had tickets. And obviously, as you can imagine, I had to cancel because, you know, the whole world shut down. So I didn't get to go see them. And shortly after that, my father, who is elderly and had other very serious health challenges at the time, he got COVID. And this was well before the vaccine when it it was very bleak for elderly people who were getting COVID. And so he's my favorite person in the world. We're very close. And he's actually the first person who reads all of my books. He's my favorite reader. And I was just devastated because I thought that for sure we were going to lose him and that I was never going to get to see him again. Uh, My sisters and I, we all live in different places in the Northeast. We were all sort of thinking about ways we could try to get to Florida. But the bottom line is there was no way back then during the lockdown. So there was no way to safely get there. And even if we did get there, we wouldn't have been able to see him anyway. I was really terrified I was never going to see my dad again. And so I decided to, I'm a writer, so I always turn to words. So I decided to write him something. And I thought it would be that sort of love letter that you always think you'll write someone and tell them everything they mean to you, but we usually don't write that letter. But it turns out a letter wasn't enough. So I decided to write him a novel instead. Um, And so I wrote him Hollyland. And I literally, I stayed up day and night. I wrote it round the clock to get it to my dad as fast as I could. So it was one of the quickest books I ever wrote, although subsequently I revised it many times. But I wrote it as quickly as I could. And he's the only person who will ever see all the nods to him because the characters are imaginative. But the protagonist is very close with her father. And there are things from my dad's upbringing, his family, where he grew up, his personality, our relationship sprinkled throughout the whole book. But really what the whole book really, it really espouses his view on life. He's the most optimistic person I know. He always looks at everything with hope and optimism, no matter what. And so this is it's really like the happiest, most joyful, most optimistic book I've ever written. So I suspect some readers may love it. I suspect some won't because they'll just think it's too much of a feel good. But that is why. And I, I make no apologies for that because I was I was writing it for my dad and I wanted it to be just sort of joy. So anyway, you know, in terms of what Hollyland is about, it's it's a light feel good read. It's a love story between an arts researcher named Dee Schwartz and an actor named Ryder Field, who descends from sort of Hollywood royalty. And it's basically a blend of romance and suspense that explores what it means to live with passion and to search for magic or what the characters call gold dust in our lives. And it's also very much a celebration of the arts. See, the protagonist is an arts researcher, and she has a pure love and appreciation of the arts. And I wondered what would happen if you took a character like Dee, who has a truly pure love of the arts, and you surrounded her with people who work in the entertainment industry. So how might she influence how others see? How would she help them to see Hollywood as what she calls Hollyland? So while the plot focuses on this sweet love story between Dee and Ryder, Hollyland also raises questions about the arts in our lives. So art and education, distinctions between art and entertainment, whether artists must compromise to be successful. And because I was thinking about my dad, uh, it really asked the question, who are the real movie stars on the big screen of our lives? So that's the story of how Hollyland came to be and what it's about. And I can honestly say I have never been more excited to release a book into the world and just to to 
circle back to the story about my dad. I finished the book during the lockdown. I wrote it as quickly as I could, had my reading buddy give me uh, notes. I sent it to my longtime copy editor and asked her to turn it around as fast as she could. And I sent it to my dad overnight mail. He read it. He absolutely loved it. He's the only person who, who sees how much of his life and our lives are in the book. And fast forward, two and a half years later, the book is now coming out and my dad is alive and well. And I have seen him many times. It's pure joy releasing this book into the world. He's got to be so proud of his daughter. Yeah, what, what a oh, gift. Well, that's very kind. Thank you. I think, I think he's proud of everyone in his family and I think I'm included in that. But I know that the book means a lot to him. And in fact, last time he visited my place in Maine, I had gotten the page proofs and I saw him, you know, glancing at the page proofs, even though he had already read the book and he came over and gave me a hug and a kiss on the cheek. So I know the book means a lot to him. And we're so glad that his health is good and he's doing well. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I, I, it really is amazing because, you know, now, of course, many people get COVID and they're absolutely fine. And, you know, most of us aren't worried about it the way we used to. But back then, you know, this is before the vaccine and he's elderly and he had other health issues. It just seemed impossible. Amazingly, he is doing well and uh, he's definitely the number one fan of the book. <laughs> oh, good. I remember it was a scary time, wasn't it? And I think we sort of forget a little bit now because, you know, I, th I think I think it was so traumatic for many of us that we just sort of choose to block it out in a way. It was a genuinely scary time where it seemed like, oh my goodness, if you get this thing, like, you know, you might die in a very real way, or, you know, you might, you might infect and kill a loved one, especially an elderly loved one. So it was a scary time. Well, we've gone from that to now, oh, I've got COVID. You're not, exactly. you're not, you're not, you're not, it's not a death sentence mm -hmm. anymore. Right. Yeah, now it's like saying you have a cold. I mean, now it's, you know, but back then it was it was really terrifying. And I'll just never forget, you know, I had just canceled that trip to my folks because I couldn't go, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then my dad gets so sick. And I think to myself, my God, I'm never going to see him. That would have that would have been my chance. I'm never going to see him. So but I am very grateful that I have creativity in my life because it, it was a very difficult, depressing time, you know, being so far away from my parents and thinking I wouldn't see my dad again. But because I was able to pour all of my energy into this novel, it was very cathartic, very productive. It's funny because I, I, I wrote so many books during the pandemic. I mean, Steve, I wrote so many books during this pandemic. <laughs> like, I have a backlist that will be coming out for years just from what I wrote during the lockdown because, you know, I wasn't leaving my house. And I think people hear what people say on social media. I see comments and that sort of thing. I think people think I just like love to be really productive. But honestly, it wasn't like that at all. It was just, it was like, a, it was survival. It was, it was something to do every day. It was something to do where I wouldn't think about all the people I was worried about, like my dad. It was just a way to pass the time. It was self-soothing. It was a way to escape into these happy places when the world we were in at the time did not seem so happy. There was no career goal or productivity sort of idea attached to any of it. It was really just a way to get from day to day. And 
in the best way I knew how. Patricia, can you take our listeners into the world of Patricia when she's writing a novel? Are you sitting down with a laptop? Do you have a PC? I, I work on my PC. I do have a laptop. I also have handwritten notebooks, but I do most of it on my PC. I will say when, when I'm working on a novel, I don't get much sleep. And it's sort of horrible for my husband because he hears me up all night and I do feel sorry for him. But there's nothing I can do. What happens when I'm working on a novel is as soon as I lie down at night and sort of everything gets quiet, I start to see scenes unfolding in my mind's eye. And I just see them over and over and over again. Because usually I know what's going to happen in a novel. Like, I know the major plot points. I know how we're going to get from A to B to C. But that doesn't mean I know every snippet of dialogue. Or I certainly don't. You, you don't. It's a process of discovery, so you don't know all the details, even if you know the big picture. So when I'm working on a novel and I'm really, if it's one I love and I'm immersed in it, I always end up up for most of the night, every night for the duration of working on the novel, because as soon as the world gets quiet, I see the scenes unfolding and I can't sort of turn off my brain. And then all I want to do is jump up and get on my computer, but I can't do that because my poor husband has to get five in the morning to go to work. So I have to lie there (laughs) and wait for an acceptable time to get up. So it's extremely immersive, which is different for me than nonfiction, nonfiction, I can I can pick it up, I can put it down, I can bracket it off in my mind. But with fiction, it's sort of like you're mentally living in the world of the characters. At least that's how it is for me. I feel like I'm living in their world. And I guess I can't really mentally get out of their world until I'm I'm done with the first draft. So when that first draft is done, then I can sort of work on it in a different way in terms of revisions, and I can pick it up and put it down. But while I'm getting that first draft down, it's it's completely immersive. And, and I always feel badly for the people in my life. I mean, I could be out to dinner with friends or my husband or my daughter, whoever, and they might be saying something to me, and I am genuinely trying to listen, but I can't because I'm watching this scene unfold in my mind's eye, mm-hmm. and I, you know, it's it's difficult to turn off. What great insight! Yeah, do you have days where you stay in your pajamas all day? Oh, I mean, there's a reason I work for myself from home. Okay, is, I mean, I am doing this interview in sweatpants and my pajama shirt. Okay, and you know, it's fantastic. So. <laughs> So, you know, I always joke, you know, my husband has a very big commute to his job. He goes across multiple states, whereas I just commute across our house and I never get out of my pajamas. And in fact, when he gets home from work at night, he knows if I had a Zoom, because if I had a Zoom, I'll be in normal street clothes <laughs> as opposed to my pajamas. Or at least, was- at least the top. I, yeah, well, I'm a nervous Nelly, so trust me, my bottoms are, are as they should be as well. But yeah, I, I find it so amazing how many people just like dress professionally from the top up. If I have to do Zoom, I will even put on high-heeled shoes. And yes, I know nobody can see them, but I feel better knowing that I have a complete outfit on. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I really do. I cannot do a Zoom or, you know, any sort of virtual event if I don't have a complete outfit. So I will even wear uncomfortable shoes, whereas I could be shoeless and nobody would know, but I, I just can't mentally do it. But I am shoeless for you folks right now because this is a podcast. Oh, great, great. Right. <laughs> podcast. I could always be in my bathing suit 
and, I always and, 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 and have a nice way. polo shirt on top. I always like to picture people that way because you never know, right? That's right. Well, Patricia, when did you start writing and how did you know you were an artist? Well, it's, a, it's kind of a difficult question because I've been writing my whole life. I mean, since I was like five or six years old and I was literally making books. So and my mother found some a few years ago and gave them to me of stories that I'd write and illustrate. And then I would bind them with like old scraps of wallpaper and glue. And she has one she found that I think the back says that I was six years old when I did it. So I've been doing this my whole life. I always wrote creatively. When I was in fifth grade, I had the most incredible teacher, Miss Mercer, who I actually found a couple of years ago so I could thank her. And that was a really full circle moment for me. But I had this incredible English teacher, Miss Mercer. And she exempt me from some of the school projects to allow me to write creatively because I had such a passion for it. And I actually tried to write my first novel when I was 10 years old in the fifth grade. And it didn't pan out because I was 10, so I did not finish it. But I got pretty far. And I will say that the idea for that novel that I had when I was 10 years old was the seed of something I ended up writing in my 40s that became a successful book. So it never sort of went away, I guess. It just was waiting until I was ready to write it. But in terms of a career, I I did not pursue creative writing. I didn't study it in school, and I did not pursue it as a career, which... In many ways, I really regret. It's difficult. Regret's a funny thing because I feel like everything you do takes you to where you are and you can't have done things differently. But at the same token, if I could go back, I'm sure I would make different decisions. I really did want to. I always felt like I was an artist. I was a storyteller. I was meant to be a novelist. I mean, I literally felt that since I was five years old, very strongly. And all my teachers saw it. But I was extremely shy, um, extremely, extremely shy. Like I would stand behind my parents and photograph. I was extremely shy. I was extremely sensitive or compassionate, if you want to look at it in a more positive light. But critical feedback was very difficult for me. I'm a person who gets my feelings hurt easily, or certainly when I was young, I would get my feelings hurt easily. And so by the time I was, you know, like a young adult and you're thinking about what you're going to pursue for a career... I just couldn't conceive of going into the arts because there's so much rejection and there's so much critique and it is brutal. I mean, it is genuinely brutal. And I say that now having been in it full time for over a decade and being in a very different place in my life, it's still brutal. And I just did not have the emotional ability to deal with that when I was 17, 18, 19, 20. And I knew that about myself. I knew that I couldn't do it. So I ended up studying something else and taking a different path and ultimately getting a PhD in sociology and becoming a sociology professor. But of course, what happens when you're in graduate school is that you're writing all the time and you need to publish your work. And I started writing creatively. I I published, I mean, in the late 90s, I published sort of like short stories, experimental writing, all in journals. I published them as academic scholarship. But people think I just started doing this like in the last decade, but I've been doing this since I was a grad student. I didn't have a name for it back then. I just knew what I was doing was artistic in a different way than what my peers were doing. But I always sort of pushed how I could write creatively in the confines of this life as an academic I created. 
And then I started publishing books and they were nonfiction academic books, but I was publishing books and I was learning about the world of publishing and how to succeed in the world of publishing. And it just sort of continued to develop where I was publishing more books and then eventually I started publishing poetry and other creative writing. And then I wrote my first novel and I realized very quickly that that really was what I was meant to do. Although I do think about it now and think had I not, had I gone the traditional route for creative author, maybe I wouldn't have had anything to write about because I think that all the things that I've learned over the years as a sociologist and also just as a person who didn't have the courage to do what she really wanted to do as someone who wasn't brave when she was young, I think I've learned a lot of valuable things that I make different choices in my life now and encourage other people to, but that also comes through in all of my characters. All of the characters in my books, they are all searching to, in some way, to live their best life and to be brave and to embrace possibilities. And I think it's because I learned very valuable lessons by not having the courage to do that. And so eventually, over 10 years ago, I had so many publishing invitations from different publishers. And as a full-time academic, there was no way I could take advantage of all of them. And so, you know, my husband and I had a talk because when you have a partner, you can't make these decisions alone. And, you know, decided that, I was always really a writer, and that's always what I had wanted to do, and that it was going to be sort of now or never if I really wanted to pursue it. And that was that was over 10 years ago, maybe 11 or 12 years ago, and I can say I have never looked back. So at this point, I've published over 40 books, fiction and nonfiction. I write every day. I absolutely love it. There is a part of me that wishes I had done this when I was younger and that I was braver, but there's also a part of me that knows I wouldn't have been able to handle it because it is actually even hard now. And people don't talk about that a lot, but it is really hard to make your way as an artist in the world. You really make yourself vulnerable. You're always open to critique. You're always putting your heart out there and you don't know how people will respond. It's extremely competitive. So all those things are real. So there's a part of me that thinks that maybe the way the journey worked out for me is the way it was meant to. Patricia, you yeah. had mentioned that you had a difficult year last year with depression, a, a topic that we have discussed in our podcast before. Would, would you like to tell us a little bit about that, if you wouldn't mind, for yeah, our readers? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and partly I'm happy to share just because I think that, first of all, so many people struggle with depression. But I also think that so many artists and writers and creatives in particular struggle because you have to be a sensitive and compassionate and vulnerable person in order to create artistic works. That is the positive side that you put this work out, but there is a, another side too where you may struggle. And, you know, it's really the past few years have been difficult for me. I mean, first of all, the pandemic was like it was for many people. And I was very lucky that I had a creative outlet, but it was still a very difficult time. And this past year has, I've just faced many challenges. I mean, some of them are collective challenges, the political landscape that we live in, which is frightening to me and frightening to me as the mother of a 22-year-old daughter. So that is depressing to me. But then some of it's just personal too. So 
My mother-in-law died unexpectedly a month after that. My husband's closest colleague and friend, who was only 49 years old, also died unexpectedly. My parents have both had health struggles. My mother has had many health struggles, and, you know, she's in her 80s, and so it's scary. My daughter has had school and career challenges, as so many young people do. So there have been all these sort of situational things. And then on top of that, I've made a lot of major career changes, And that has come with difficulty, too. So during the pandemic, I decided that I really wanted more joy in my life. And so I left a couple publishers that I had worked with long term because I I just really felt like it was those relationships were not serving me anymore. They were not the right caretakers of my creative works. I left those publishers and I found a new publisher for my fiction And I absolutely love them. And so Hollyland is my first novel coming out with my new fiction publisher. And I have three others under contract. And so I love them and it's been fantastic. But there's also a lot of pressure when you you move to a new publisher, when this is how you make your livelihood. I've moved into a much more competitive world in fiction publishing, moving from smaller presses and academic presses to the world of commercial and trade fiction publishing. And so, you know, there's just anxiety that comes with all of that. And it's one of those things. It's like people always look at the positive. So, you know, on social media, obviously we all post positive things that happen. And so if I get a book award or something like that, I share it with my followers and my friends. But life isn't only those things. There's another side too. And and people see the positive, but the negative is that The more successful you are, it's like the higher you climb a mountain. The higher you climb a mountain, the windier it's going to be. It gets colder, it gets windier, and there's much more that can knock you to the ground. And it's true in a creative path, too. It's true when you're making your life as an author or an artist. It is difficult. And so the flip side of anything positive that people might see on social media and any success I have is that there is a lot of behind the scenes stuff that is very challenging too. Between these different sort of personal things, political things, and these career changes, the last year has been tough. And and it's been really like a series of highs and lows, which I don't think is a very healthy way probably for anyone to live where everything's either really good or really bad. But it has felt that way for me. And so I really went into the new year. I'm not a big New Year's resolution person. I think we can do a reset at any time. I think resolutions are sort of designed to fail. But all that being said, I did go into the new year wanting to intentionally try to make an energy shift, try to look at things differently, like do what I can. And I'm not saying by any means that people can completely control depression because that's not the case. And certainly for many people, it's not the case. But I do know that for myself, that my attitude, how I choose to look at things, how I frame things does have a big impact on how I feel. And so I really went into this new year wanting to set new intentions. And so far, it's actually been great. Not everything has been perfect, because not everything is perfect in anyone's life. But I will say that the last month has really just been like I I have felt that I am at a much more sort of consistent emotional state versus a series of highs and lows. Thank you for sharing your struggles with us. Thank you so much, first off, for taking your time with us today after flying back home. I read about that you have a criminology background or a minor. Do you see a crime mystery novel in your future? Okay, so 
always think that I have a criminology background, but I actually don't. What it is is that I taught in one school in a combined sociology and criminal justice program, and then in another school I taught in a combined sociology and criminology department, but I never did criminology. I only did sociology. So I don't really have that background. Now, that doesn't mean I wouldn't write, you know, I'll never say no to anything. I'm open to different genres. You know, I I have a novel that I want to write that is a romantic suspense, and Hollyland is a romantic suspense. I mean, I think it's more of a love story than anything else, but there's definitely a suspense element. And I have another novel in mind that is also a romantic suspense with an even bigger sort of suspense plot. So right now, that's as far as I'm going into that world, but I am completely open. There is no genre I would say no to because I just feel like you don't know when you when you see the, a certain character in your head or you, you get an idea for a story, you know, you just don't know where that's going to fit or what shape it's going to take. And so I am open to that process of discovery. Okay. Is there in your characters a teeny weeny little bit of Patricia in Tess or any of your characters? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I think there's a bit of me in all the characters and not just the protagonists either. I think it's very hard to write a character unless you can relate in some way. I mean, the issue is that, I mean, I've basically been accused, Steve, of like being all of my protagonists. And I say <laughs> accused because that's how some people do it. They don't say it in the lovely way that you did. But I've had, a, I've had people basically accuse me of being every protagonist, which is funny in a certain way, because if you read my novels, the protagonists are all so radically different from each other that nobody could ever be all of them. But there's always some nugget of me in each of them. And sometimes it's a bigger nugget than others. And then I throw in lots of imagination for a good measure. And so, you know, Tess Lee is my favorite character from the Celestial Bodies collection. And all the characters in that collection, they they are just my favorite characters. And I loved writing them. And there are definitely pieces of me in Tess. And I did get her name as a derivative of my name when I was thinking about what to call her. But that said, we're also very different. We have very different lives, experiences. We look different. We There are, are very big differences, but there is definitely a, a piece of my heart inside of her. Okay. Well, I know one difference is, is that she lives in Hawaii. And you live in Maine. Oh, man, that is a difference this time of year. I'll tell you. As, as someone, in, my house is encased in icicles right now. So it's definitely not Hawaii. But I will tell you that during the lockdown, my husband and I made a pandemic wish list of things we wanted to do when we finally got out. And one of them was we wanted to take a trip to Hawaii. And that was 100% because I had written the last two Tesla novels while we were in the lockdown. So I just had like Maui on my brain. And the most amazing thing happened. Last January, we went to uh, Maui and we flew through LAX in Los Angeles. So we flew from Boston to LA and then on to Maui. And in LA, the gentleman who helped check our luggage um, onto the flight had a name tag and his name tag said Omar. And Omar is the name of Tess's best friend in the Celestial Bodies book. And what was really amazing is that in North Star, which is the fifth book in Celestial Bodies, the fifth out of six, in North Star, Tess moves to Hawaii. Tess and her husband Jack move to Hawaii. And it's Omar who tells her 
go and don't look back, not for a second. And he, it's, it's my favorite moment in that book. And it's one of my favorite moments in the entire collection. It's just this act of unconditional love and generosity where she doesn't want to leave because she doesn't want to leave him. And he tells her to go, go live your life, live your happily ever after with the love of your life and don't look back, not for a second. And so meanwhile, that was the first thing I wrote during the lockdown. And then the first big trip we took after the lockdown was to Hawaii. And at LAX, a man named Omar checked my luggage for me. And I just thought, wow, that is like a beautiful little gift from the universe, because I don't think those things are, are random at all. I think that there are these little gifts that come to us. Yeah, how about that? And plus, in the book, Omar, he's certainly got to... Um benefit from Tess and Jack living in Maui. Oh, he sure did. I'm hoping some of my <laughs> friends move to Maui and invite me. My last question. Well, I don't have a question. I just wanted to give a shout out to the only reason I know you is because we have a mutual friend, Ivan Brady. Who I love. He is so fabulous. And you know what? I've never, I've never met in person you or Ivan. I've never met him in person either, and I actually invited him to one of my book signings years ago, but he wasn't able to do it. I mean, we've been friends for years. We've sent each other mail, We, I mean, and we've never met in person either, which is it's just such a amazing thing about the world that we live in right now, that we have these relationships with people that are very real relationships, but um, they're different. Yeah, and I can't even tell you how I met Ivan, but I know that, and it's been a number of years ago. After he had his health problems, he asked me, because he knows where I live, said, would I go to Mojave National Preserve? And he gave me a laundry list of things that I needed to check out for him so he could write his book. So I went and took pictures and met some of his friends. so cool. Yeah. That is super cool. Super cool. So social media. He was doing creative work. He was doing, you know, creative poetic scholarship um, long before I was. So he's definitely an inspiration. But I do want to just thank you both because you are so sweet and I've so enjoyed talking to you. And Linda, thank you so much for your kind comments about my book. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Patricia, for coming on today. I've learned so much about art, arts-based research and the life of a writer and how oh, you get to wear your you. pajamas at kind. home. <laughs> was great. We've been waiting a long time to get Patricia, uh-huh. and we've done our research. We have. You more than me. Oh, no, I'd say your book was thicker. I read <laughs> Film Blue, and you read Celestial Bodies. Celestial I'm impressed, Bodies too. six books. Right. So, and, and I read Film Blue. And oh, I'm, my gosh, you're a much faster and, reader and than got, I am. I've got Hollyland on order. Oh, good. Hear I that, look Patricia? forward we to got Hollyland on order. I look forward to reading that as well. I learned so much from these podcasts, Steve. We've had a fantastic day. Yeah, just today. Uh huh. We've interviewed Jean and Carol from the Women's History and Culture Center. It's not Cultural right. Center. Uh, that was all smiles the whole day. Yes. Boy, it was wind Jean up and she talks. <laughs> we hardly had to ask anything. But it was a devil getting her in the seat, wasn't it? You know, those two ladies are so much fun. You know it has to be fun to work with them. I am. I would encourage anybody who wants to have a great time, do some volunteer work, 
and uh, meet fantastic women to get out to down to the Women's History and Culture Center. Because yeah, anytime we want to use the facility, she lets us. I, right. I just think there's a ton more of collaboration that we can do in this town between all of these heartfelt nonprofits. Yes. And there's a lot in this little town. There are. It's amazing. So what's inspired me this week is meeting all these fantastic, strong women who are so supportive of others. And Carol Salvador, Jean Watkins, and our new guest we interviewed today, Patricia Levy, are fantastic, strong women. I enjoyed meeting them. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, where all accompanying images and links are available on the Art Box page. Questions, comments, opinions, and concerns can be sent to artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Virgin Valley Artists Association.